Welcome to Forever LDS. Today is a special day, especially for me, because I'm here with one of my best friends and also one of the finest artists, the finest artist that I personally know. In fact, uh, Derek Hegstead and I have known each other since we were missionary companions back in 1984-85 in Tallahassee, Florida. That's how long that we have known each other. I mean, we knew each other when we were nothing. When I had published nothing, when he had painted, he'd actually actually painted some pretty gorgeous stuff even then and showed it to me when I was on my mission. Then we reconnected and we've been friends ever since. And it was interesting that we reconnected at the moment that he painted the painting that is the cover work for this podcast, I Will Not Fail Thee, which is a very famous painting in LDS culture. I met you at a BYU setting where you were showing off I Will Not Fail Thee. Really? I Will Not Fail Thee was painted in 93. So, yeah. You were showing I Will Not Fail Thee at an event at BYU, and I saw that and my jaw dropped. It was I, I knew you were a great artist. I knew it because of just some of the lights and shadows that you had showed me from some high school drawings that you had done. And Derek and I are both very eccentric. We're both very ADHD. And so we got along great. And uh, <laughs> we had an extraordinary... I, I sent him home from his mission. <clears throat> Yahoo! Uh, because he was ready. He wanted to go. And I wanted to give him a great last three months of the mission. And we worked so hard. But we just had we a tracked ball. It. Our last day. We tracked it our last day. That's it right. Was awesome. I made him to go tracking on his last day. And I but, was kicking and screaming, no, I don't want to work now. No, you weren't. He loved it. He loved it. He loved those last days of his mission. And, that was a blast. And actually, I only had about three months left of my mission as well. And then, uh, as I said, he's a companion from my mission that I've remained close to as friends ever since. And he has painted some brilliant, gorgeous paintings. And I've put them on my website at Forever LDS. And you need to look at them because immediately you'll go, oh, I know exactly who Derek Hegstead is. Journey's End, I Will Not Fail Thee. And the, the first painting that you did, Fear of Hope, I think that was the first painting that you did that was ever done in the Ensign or that was published by the church. Well, it was in, it was in the uh, world competition for the church. And so I had an opportunity to be with some really big names that have always been friends of mine since I was Greg Olson and Dale Parson and, and likes of that. So it was it was pretty special to be a part of that. Working with Karma DeYoung Anderson, the world textile expert for the LDS Church, I made the dress. A lot of people don't don't really want to do that kind of stuff, but I had the dress made. It was from a pattern of two thousand year old patterns that they had in the embroidery. All of its real. You're embroidery. talking about the dress that was worn by Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. in that painting. In that painting. You had an old design of a, or pattern for dressmaking yeah. from ancient Israel, and you used that yeah. as a pattern. That is cool. That kind of research as an artist is what we're all hoping for and looking for to determine or judge quality in our work. But, you know, Derek has gone on from that and gone on from that. That almost sounds like it's like, now that was amateur stuff. And this is professional I feel stuff. amateur with some of that other stuff. It's like, oh, how did I even let that go out and be printed? I know that he has studied so much light and form and style and abstract painting, everything since that time. And so he has gone on to do many, many more styles and many, many more art forms. And 
I wanted to talk about what it means to be a Latter-day Saint and to be an artist and the challenges that are faced by that. Because what would you think would be one of the questions that we face almost every day from other members of the church as they're sitting there asking, how you do know, you make a living? How do you make a living? Yeah, there's well, always that this, question. The market here at Utah, we have per capita, we have more artists in the state of Utah than almost any other state in the union. There are so many artists that are actually out there selling, whether they're weekend warriors or whatever. There are so many artists. You go to one of the largest exhibitions, uh, the Spring Salon exhibition in Springville. It was huge to help the other artists get into it and get into the business because if you got into there and you were in the salon, people validated you. When you had Vern Swanson, who was one of the kindest, one of the most amazing, intelligent people that understood the arts. He always said, well, I can't draw, but I love art. And so he, he was the curator. And he was one of the greatest inspirations to me because he believed in me. He kept saying, you can do this, you can do this. And it's very difficult because the competition in the LDS world is one thing, but our artists that come out of Utah, that come out of the LDS church, are some of the finest Christian artists in the world, period, no hands doubt. down. No and doubt. when people find out that we are from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they withdraw. Why? Well, I had a guy looked at my painting of I Will Not Fail Thee. It's the little girl being held by Christ. And he says... Where this is the famous one that's the cover yeah. on the website yeah. and on Facebook. Yeah, he, he came up to me and we were talking and he said, well, Mormons are going to hell. And I just go, now why is that? He said, because the Latter-day Saint culture does not respect the separation of God and membership. And you are too close. You do not have the spacing. Your love to God, you're just too personal. And I go, but aren't you supposed to be thinking about a loving Heavenly Father? He's your Heavenly Father. You're talking to Him. But with, with respect, thee and thou, and that kind of, of speaking, he says, you're too close. He says, but you, I know that you're going to heaven. I know that you're okay. I go, well, why am I any different? He says, because your painting tells me that you know your God. Yeah, I always wonder about that. And it People was, who make those kinds it was of really, blanket it, judgments just based it, on whether they'd like your material or not. It set me back a little bit. I thought, wow, that's interesting. I know personally that what I write <laughs> and what an artist paints, it's like sometimes it's a definition of the best of ourselves. Yeah. And every other moment we are just human. We're full of flaws. We're full of challenges. We're full of tragedy. I put my pants on the same way as... The next guy. Well, tell so, me a little bit about your background. You grew up in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Yeah, I, I graduated from Rigby, Idaho. There was no, none whatsoever art lessons to be had. They did not offer any art Well, classes. I know from when I met you and, on a mission, the first piece of art that you showed me, which was, I think, a pencil drawing, you said had won some kind of an Idaho national or state yeah, competition. I, I won the state championship a couple times without art lessons because... I had a friend on the other side of the river. I lived in a hundred acres. That sounds the like they're in heaven. You had a friend on the other side of the river. You mean through the uh, veil? Well, I felt like it was heaven because it was by the Snake River, <laughs> and he had he was a falconer. It was Bill Smith, and we we're in the Osgood area, right there by the Snake River. And I got to meet him because he was looking for one of his goshawks that had escaped, 
And he said, yeah, I like artwork and blah, blah, blah. And he said, but I have it. I said, can I come over and see your falcons? Can I see them? He said, sure, come over. So I went over there the next week and I got introduced to falconry and I would go off and I'd scare up the rabbits with him. We'd go hunting for rabbits with this ginormous red-tailed hawk. And it was just wonderful. I'm this little kid going around living a dream of with animals. I loved animals, all sorts of stuff like that. And I love to fish. And uh, one of the times we got that to... is true. Derek is known as a, as one of the great fine artists of the world, but he is also one of the top fly tying fly fishermen uh, <laughs> in the world. It's like oh, he is stop. so so obsessed. Oh, and I he and obsessed. I he taught me how to fly fish a few months ago. I went back. I'd, I'd fly fish when I was young, but I hadn't fly fish for a long, long time. And he took me back, and we fly fished up the Logan River, and we had one of the most unsuccessful <laughs> fishing yeah. experiences I've ever had. We didn't catch, we didn't even get a bite. I didn't even, I didn't even, did I hook one? At least you did didn't I snag one? Did I snag? So I lost faith in all of his talents as a fly fisherman. <laughs> but ignoring all I of that, too. I, ignoring all of that, I, I've seen him come home with tons of fish. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he, as I say, it's an art for him also to tie. Everything is an art for him. Tying flies. All well, those dumb to, flies will take me up to, literally, some of these flies, I spend up to 30 minutes on a stupid fly. It's outrageous, but I catch really big fish. So it's yeah, he does. He does. He does, but he won't take me on any of those trips. He takes me to uh, Logan River on trips where we get skunked. <laughs> we get yeah, where the, we're in the Logan River. They're all fed I told you, you fresh have hamburger. To hold your, you have to hold your mouth a certain way, and you won't do it. I have to hold my you mouth. You have a to certain hold way. your mouth a certain way. It's I'm I'm the problem. That's what he's basically. That's concluded. what Leon Parson taught me. All right, back to subject. Hold your mouth a certain way. This is going to be a problem with two ADHD people. That's we're true. going to go Squirrel. off on different subjects, and we're going to, and it's going to be difficult to. But I'm going to, I'm going to keep his focus. I believe there are certain challenges associated with being an artist and being a Latter Day Saint. You you constantly have to face the judgment of what Latter Day Saints believe art should be. I remember when I first started my career, where I wrote Tennis Shoes Among the Nephites. I was at one of my first autograph parties. Somebody came up to me and they said, and I, I told them all about my book, and they said, I won't read a book that tries to fictionalize aspects of the Book of Mormon. I'm only interested in nonfiction. And I've never forgotten that moment because I've wondered, well, am I doing the right thing by fictionalizing aspects of the Book of Mormon? But what I'm doing is celebrating the Book of Mormon. Should I be doing that? And I know that Derek has had his challenges because sometimes he will put his heart and soul into painting on a religious subject or on a religious topic. And the powers that be, either at Ensign Magazine or in other areas, will disagree with the shoes on somebody's feet or or something like that how do you deal with that kind of pressure and judgment as an artist it, it's kind of like mind over matter if you don't mind it doesn't matter i don't i don't really uh worry too much about a lot of times the attitudes of people thinking they know more about it than somebody else what i do is i try to give my friends that are professors a chance to show me what they know i do my research and I do pre-drawings, and I let them be a part of it. it. It makes me feel good that I'm around people that know more about this than I do. I make sure that I read my scriptures, that I'm studying, and I am putting all these details together. 
the hard thing is is that everybody is a professional at this and everybody's got an opinion you mean everybody thinks they're professional well they they, they think they are and i respect that because i want them to enjoy what i'm doing with your books you got my kids to want to read about the Book of Mormon, about these characters, about what was going, where did Uncle Chris get all these wonderful little ideas to build these wonderful books? And you got my kids to read. There were some of the first beginning books that we had my kids read. They wanted to, and they wanted to go and read the Book of Mormon and understand where this stuff came from, which is wonderful. My paintings, I want people to think past the end of their nose and think about, like with Light of the World, with Mary and the Christ Child. Christ is about a two and a half, three year old. That painting is only available to see on my website, or it's on uh, DerekHegstead.com. But if you want to see some of these beautiful paintings, some of which you'll recognize because they've been really publicized and popularized in LDS culture, and some that you may not recognize. And it's interesting, the stories behind the reasons why some of them were not publicized and the reason why some of them were publicized. I'm not sure if we'll get into that well, very Well, Light of the World was in the end sign, and it was a piece that the song Jesus Wants By the way, a Little Child. What, what Light of the World is, is a painting of Mary with the Christ child, but the Christ child is a toddler. He's not an infant. And that's an image which not many people have approached as as artists. She's sitting there. And so the mother is sitting there holding a candle, and the mother and the child are both looking at the candle, and you can tell that the mother is having a spiritual or at least a loving conversation with her son. What was interesting is that he painted the Savior wearing only a a loincloth, basically, or a, a small tie about the waist. What's true about history is at that particular time, the child would have been naked. The child would have been totally without any clothes in ancient Israel at that particular era. But nobody in modern times would be able to take an image like that. So he said, I will at least cover the body of the Savior in some way so that it's not... But there were still people at the church... There were still There were still people who published with church magazines who said the Savior should be fully dressed. He can't be... Uh, he, he can't, we can't see the, the Savior's toddler body. Tell me what you did for that painting of the Christ child as a oh, toddler God. in order to have it in the I went, my wife have and it I, in church magazines. My, my wife and I went and purchased a $600 uh, edition This would have been Photoshop. the late 90s, right? Yeah, and Photoshop. And $600 for this thing shows you how old I am. And I learned how to do Photoshop, and I took a picture of a beautiful little cloth, and I draped it over Christ, and then I manipulated it, and I put it over his body, and the ensign said, okay, we'll print it. So I went ahead and printed it with a little toga. Those (laughs) those are the kinds of battles that an artist sometimes has to fight between what they feel is the true expression of what my art is and what the commercial market is demanding. The fact is that it's difficult sometimes for Latter-day Saints to separate some of the bureaucracies of the church with the church and the gospel itself. Most people understand how to navigate that mentally and emotionally, but many people Um, do not. When you're you're dealing with the, the church 
leadership of bureaucracy, the magazine. The bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy. And keep in mind that the 12 apostles, the general authorities, they don't have time to be involved in all the day-to-day -day yeah. decisions on these things. Yeah. You don't want to come across as unteachable. And I was very teachable, and I wanted to be a part of something very beautiful. And that was in the magazines that would validate what I was trying to say. And what I was trying to say is that Jesus is the Christ. And I want to bear witness whether or not I was working for New York with Bantam Books or, or Bridge Publications in Hollywood. That was the stuff that made money for my family. But I wanted to be able to paint the testimony that I was given. And if I got funding back from the print sales and that, hey, that's great. That's the icing on the cake. But it took me a while to finally separate myself from that desire of thinking I could make a living painting religious pieces because I would rather paint for the Lord and make less money than paint for New York and Hollywood and be subjected to some of the unsavory types of styles and subject matter they wanted me to paint because they knew I could paint any type of body any way that they wanted to. I didn't want to paint that type of stuff. We're back here at Forever LDS with Derek Hegstead, fine artist. Now, when I knew you on your mission, you had some brilliant pieces of art that you kept prints of, photographs of in your wallet and, and in some other material. When did you know you wanted to be an artist for a living? Or I think you already knew. Well, when I was six years old, I was drawing dinosaurs. My first book was a dinosaur book, and I just drew and drew you know and drew. And it My was first just... book was a dinosaur book. Oh, my word. Funny. I That's still have weird. it. I still, still have it. I my, might have it. I might have it. There mom, are things that I do. My mom didn't know what to do with me in church. My mom didn't <clears> know <throat> what to do with me in life. Yeah. Well, she, <laughs> I don't want to go there. She'd give me clay in church, and I was sculpt. And I, my, my motor skills, I couldn't do math, but I, I could, I could do clay. That is one thing that's important to know about Derek. It doesn't matter what the medium is, whether it's painting, whether it's sculpting. Whether it's doing uh, textures on your wall, or whether it's fixing motorcycles, whether it's tying flies, anything that he decides to put his mind to mastering, if it is a skill with your hands, I've never known Derek to fail at mastering it. It's an incredible talent. It was interesting that when I was in the eighth grade, I made a literal mental choice because I was doing a lot of painting, a lot of drawing, a lot of things like that. And I said, you know what? I want to be a storyteller. I don't want to be a painter. Instead, Derek made a different choice. He said, I do want to be in the world of creating images. I want to create images for the rest of my life, whether it's a sculpture, no matter what it is. And I'm wondering, how did you balance that with being also a Latter-day Saint? You, you've talked a little bit about how you wanted to celebrate your testimony of Christ with your artwork. And I'm wondering how that experience has been for you, how you felt about the challenges that you've had to face celebrating Christ, celebrating our mortal relationship with the Savior, and at the same time having people not satisfied with what you were creating. Let me approach it this way. There's a reason why they voted me most unique in high school. I was approached once. In, because uh, you're, extra you're extraordinarily eccentric. 
just like me. I, I always say a little of me goes a long way. I, I, I'm, I've been called exhausting. I have been called annoying. I, I have been called, I have nothing left. Will you please go? Wow, go we have fishing. all of the same, all the same epithets qual- used to qualities, describe each other. All the same qualities. Yes, I know. I don't know how we stand each other because I just... I, I, we stand each I other because we understand. Yeah, but we why do we get understand. along so well? So anyway, back to the original schedule program. I'm going to put it to you this way. When 9-11 hit, I was approached by five clergy from five different churches. And they asked me if I would allow them to use Journey's End for a one-year commemorative poster for... Journey's End, by the way, is a painting of the Savior embracing uh, a mortal, uh, embracing him, welcoming him after death into the eternities. It's one of the paintings on the website, which is also one of Derek's most famous works. Anyway, so go on with your story. So they asked me to be a part of this. They will would you do this? I go, sure. What will it cost? I go, absolutely nothing. And I said, well, that's wonderful. And I said, not only that, I will help you. I will help you build this poster. Because when 9-11 hit, it was so upsetting to me to watch my brothers and sisters die like that. And then to find out how many people have died since then with the asbestos poisonings and all the stuff that's gone on. And it was very upsetting to me. And I had felt such a hopeless, helpless feeling of not knowing what I could do as a fellow American and a Christian. And so I helped them with this poster. And what they did was they took the silhouette and a very, very subtle image of the Twin Towers, and they put Journey's in with Christ and the Man superimposed with the building showing through. I need to put that image on the website. It's beautiful. They did a beautiful job. And what I would do is, okay, now see where that window is? You're right at the guy's eye. We need to take that out of there. And so we, we built this together. And I worked with them for months on it, back and forth. By the time they finished, they said, okay, we're done. I said, okay, great. You're all good. Good to go. Then we were talking about religion or something like this. And they go, well, what religion? I go, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. They go... You're a Mormon? I go, yes, I'm a Mormon. He says, you are the most unique Mormon we have ever had the pleasure of being around. And I thought, maybe... Why Why do you think they said that? Maybe the quirkiness of myself can be utilized to calm people's fears about what they think Latter-day Saints are truly about. It was a pleasure to be around these people so how did they use this painting? They put it on a poster and they gave the poster to people as comfort, but as a commemorative poster uh, for the year. So this poster went to specific people who were survivors of some of the victims of the 9-11 experience. Yeah. They put this poster out as a celebration and it was such a pleasure to be a part of something way bigger than me. I, the hardest thing about being an artist is that everything depends upon my creativity, pieces that make people want to spend ten, fifteen, three hundred dollars on something that's right in your face saying, I am a Christian. That's quite a message to tell people when you walk in. I had one guy says, Well, I, I don't want to have all your artwork in my house. I don't want to walk in, I don't want people to walk in and think like they're in a temple. 
And I thought that was an interesting comment because are we not Latter-day Saints and Christians 24 hours a day, It's, it's an interesting concept that I think President Nelson has emphasized recently that our homes are temples. Our, our temples. It was concerning me that there's some people that have that and I don't throw it in people's faces. They can come into my house and see originals, but they don't, if they don't want to look at them, look at it. It's not a big deal. These paintings were for me. And if you like them, you like them. If you don't, I don't really worry about it. I want you to be able to walk in and not be uncomfortable. But my thing is that I don't want to do cookie cutter paintings. I don't paint paintings just to fit your lifestyle or no you're very <clears throat> you're very choosy about the images that you decide to well, find light like of paint. the world light of the world with christ as a two and a half three-year-old i was the one the very first i can't find in 1999 a painting of christ as a two and a half three-year-old i've looked and then after that morgan weissing did a beautiful painting of christ as a little toddler i just wanted to be a catalyst to have people get some inspiration and do their own paintings. Every person that's an artist should have that opportunity to bear their witness that a picture's worth a thousand words to say that Jesus is the Christ. I don't believe necessarily that if you're, you're More a More than a thousand. Oh, well, that's true. Everybody should have no, that opportunity to do that. When I, when I stare at Journey's End, Journey's End or I Will Not Fairly are two paintings that the minute you walk in my house, that's what you see, because I want that to be the feeling that somebody has. I gaze at those paintings, and they're a source of comfort. They're a source of thinking about who I am, who the Savior is, and what my goal is in this life. The truth is, we don't know, really, what the Savior looked like. We have certain tags that we associate with how the Savior appears. More people have testified about how the Savior appears in a celestial form than how he appears in a mortal form. Well, that's an interesting uh, subject you just bring up. I was always struggling. Oh, I got to do this. Well, I got to make a Roman nose. You got to do this. You gotta, here's a Jewish nose. You got to do this stuff. Always oh, looks too Anglo-Saxon. And I'm looking at this and I'm struggling in my prayers to understand what I'm supposed to do so that this will be pleasing to my Heavenly Father, and to Christ. And a really neat feeling came over me. The only way I can be able to translate it is it doesn't matter what I look like. What matters is how they feel when they see me in your paintings. It doesn't matter. What matters is if it is pleasing to the viewer and it brings them closer to me. That's an excellent point. That's that's a that's a sacred point. That's the way that my books are. Instead of somebody becoming nitpicky and saying, well, obviously your books take place among jaguars, so you're trying to make a statement about where the Book of Mormon took place. And it's like, I'm doing the best I can, according to research and archaeology and, and according to what we understand about these subjects. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to celebrate the Book of Mormon is to give people texture, uh, background, substance to those, those stories that they're reading about in Scripture itself so that the Book of Mormon itself comes alive. And you're trying to do the same thing with people's understanding and testimony of Jesus Christ. Period. Just that simple. And the pickiness of 
Is this accurate? Is that... um... I do that for me, like the dresses. Karma DeYoung Anderson said, he says, Fear of Hope and Light of the World that I painted are two of the most accurately dressed women in church history. I didn't really care. I just painted what I found. Church history being ancient Jewish history. Yeah, but ever been painted in the LDS church. They had panels. They had little tiny X's that they would cross over in colors. I've got the books that shows these patterns. They didn't have some of the things that other people put out there. Their dresses were done a certain way. And it drove karma crazy because all the facts were there. But the point was, is that the people really didn't care. A lot of my friends, they were right. People don't really pay attention to that. What they paid attention to is how did the painting bear the witness? And you know what? How did it make them feel? How did it make them feel? Did it bring them closer? And that's all I wanted to do. And that. But we know, and there yeah. are there yeah. is always a certain segment that, of the population or, or whatever that knows enough about these subjects that those kinds of things can become stumbling blocks. They can bother them. And so we do our best as artists to research the topic as thoroughly as we can. And then at a certain point, we jump off a cliff. We just jump into midair saying, I have to paint the image. And if it's not perfect, that's okay, because I did my homework, and I knelt before God, and I'm still trying to do the best I possibly can. Well, you ask him, you say, will this be acceptable? And he says, it's fine. If people have a problem, then it's their problem. If they don't like it, don't look at it. Well, we've both had our challenges with trying to create art that is going to entertain, inspire, motivate, and uplift not only members of the church, but people who are outside of our faith. We are only one voice. We're not prophets. We're just simply people who want to play our own role in building the kingdom of God in our own way, using the gifts and talents that we have. And I think LDS artists, any artist, if they feel that and they follow that guidance and that inspiration, they can change the world for a few people, maybe for a significant number of people. But isn't that the scripture? But it's only ever one piece of the puzzle. They're going to need a... A thousand other influences to help a person return to their father in heaven. And we just want to be one piece in that puzzle to help people make that journey. We're one voice. And then if we can become one voice together, this world is becoming so aggressive against Christianity. When you find that it's not cool to be Christian in the United States, and I'm as a school teacher... And, uh, uh, by the way, I should there. mention that the, at a certain point, Derek, uh, you know that, that old adage that if you can't do, teach? Not true with Derek. Derek did and then decided, I have to give my gifts to the youth of the world. There are people who can benefit from what I have to share. And so he later went back and got his teaching degree and decided to give the gifts that he has to the youth of not just the church, but just he teaches in Payson, Utah. American Leadership Academy. American Leadership in, in Academy. In Spanish Fork. In Spanish okay. Fork. And when I got there, it was an interesting thing because the way they were taught was not how I was taught and the way they wanted it to be taught. So when I came in and I started showing the how an art class should be done, We'll just oh, make it a short story longer. An amazing thing. I've got to tell you, the, the <laughs> audience, that 
I have a daughter who is in Derek's art class. And from the things that she tells me, there is no art department in Utah that teaches what Derek... There's very few, very few. college departments that have the kind of program that you do teaching somebody the kind of fine art talents and techniques. There, there are some really, really good teachers that are just wonderful to these students, but they're few and far between. The biggest problem that I get is This is that, a small charter school, yeah. and it's got you as well, uh, their they, art teacher. Do you know what happened last year? We, the, my students won their 40th state championship award in the arts, uh, over 120 awards. My students have been able to win some of the top awards in the state of Utah, which is amazing. And so that's they come to me and they find out what I'm doing. They go, what do you do? I says, I help students unlock how amazing they are. My job is not to make you great at everything. My job is to help you find you what you're good at and help you be better. I help them build portfolios. I help them do work and I help them get scholarships and I help them get into places where they can further the work that they want to do. It's it's such a pleasure. It's so wonderful to be a part of something that's bigger than me because we're all as teachers trying to make a difference in these kids' lives. And I, I would I wish I could have started this sooner. I, I fought it. They asked me to come and teach. I said, No, I don't want to teach a bunch of snot nosed little kids. No, I'm not gonna do this. Yes, you're right. No, no. Then next thing you know, uh Heidi Olson, a friend of mine, she was a collector of my work and has always loved uh Light of the World and she goes, You need to come and teach here. I said, No, I don't want to. She said, No, you don't understand. You have three weeks to learn your lessons and to get this together because we fired the teacher. And you have to be there three weeks. Bye. And she hung up the phone. <laughs> and and I'm like, oh, flipping deal. So I started. And the first year I was there, uh, my kids making into the All-State Championship, won the state championship for our division in art. And these kids have just exploded. I, I teach 17 different mediums. But my room is so small, I, I can only teach 13. But I go from calligraphy to pottery. I got kids that are winning uh, state championships in pottery. The Spring Salon Exhibition is in Springville, and I encourage everybody to make sure that they go there. It's coming up in January, so we're, we're going to be having our stuff in January, and then look up, and in February, the exhibition starts, and you guys want to see something really special. Come see the arts of Utah from the youth. It's amazing. I can barely keep up with the kids in my school. The ability in the students nowadays it's so amazing, and I, I can barely keep up. They're the so valiant of the next generation. They it's have extraordinary talent. Well, these kids will take up. Uh, they'll give me a. Well, I want to do a dance. I go cool. Well, why don't we do something like this? And so this this ballet star in our school because I I love dancing. I did dancing in school stuff like this. I said, say something. Don't just make it a pretty sweet sappy puppy dog picture. Say something. I says honor what the sacrifice of these dancers go through. Show their feet and how their feet are broken up and hurting and losing toenails and having skin ripped off and having bandages on their feet so that we can see the beauty and the grace of, of a dancer in the Nutcracker, in these different dances. And so what she did, took two bare feet and reflected it from the dancing of the dancer standing right here in the picture the reflections are the bare feet, and it shows the wounds. 
and it's called Reflections of Passion. And I've got every dancer that saw it, they want to, want the picture. And they're bugging, please get the picture done. Please get the picture done. Had another girl. She wanted to do a charcoal of a little boy, a little three-year-old in Afghanistan holding an AK-47. And the father's got his hand on the child's head. And she wanted to do this. And I'm looking, I said, that's amazing. What, what can you do to make this better? And I says, the hand of the boy isn't working. So she refilmed the hand of the little boy and made it look better. I says, now, let's say something. Take the eyes out and just make it blank white. It was so striking, so amazing, because the picture is called The Red Mosque of Afghanistan. And it talks about how they take the children because they don't, the families don't have money. They take these children into the red mosques and they said, we will feed them, clothe them, we will teach them. And if they'll memorize the Quran, they'll go to heaven and your family will go to heaven. And about 20 years ago, there's only about 3,200 3, of them. Now there's between 32 and 40,000 red mosques and 75% of the suicide bombers come from the red mosque of Afghanistan. But then... Guess what? She puts it on Pinterest, and guess who calls her up? McKieran. He's the guy who took the picture. He's one of the top photographers in the world. She's 15 in a, a no-name little tiny school as American Leadership Academy. It's only been around for 14 years. And he contacts her, says, I love what you did with my picture. I need a, a hard copy of it. I need a digital copy of it, and I want your permission that I can put this in archive and use this. She's 15 years old, being approached by one of the top photographers for the National Geographic and the world, and she did this because she was able to be taught. And she took the challenge that I gave her. Say something. We do this every year. You ought to see all the stuff these kids are drawing. It's amazing. Well, the, the point that I want to make and what we can probably conclude on is just the idea that a lot of artists, they, they're in a sense so self-absorbed that they just don't feel like they can come out of their shell where they're creating their own art to actually share what they've learned, what they've observed, what they've felt with others so that they can then bring their own thing, their own talent and vision to the table and give it to the next generation. And so that's what I admire Derek for as he gets older and older. <laughs> As we both get so old. Yeah, is 54 that next week, 54. <laughs> well, we knew each other when we were 19 and 20 years old, and we've come so far. So uh, with this podcast, I'm trying to share some of my experiences, feelings, and visions about what art should be, what my testimony of the gospel is. And I think Derek has done an incredible thing by offering his talents and gifts to the world in, in his own way. And he will continue to paint. He has in line some images that he's been telling me about for the last 20 years of Book of Mormon heroes, images that he has of paintings from the Book of Mormon that would rival anything that's ever been painted. In a sense, he's, he's continually asked Heavenly Father, can I paint these yet? Can I paint these yet? And he feels like he's finally been given clearance. Finally got sold. To I be able to paint them. So we look forward to that. We look forward to all of the things that you create, as well as great artists for the next generation. This has been an honor and an opportunity to be able to be with Derek Hegstead, to be able to 
And, and why don't we close that out? I mean, this might sound like a, a strange, silly concept, but I believe in it, and it's still a powerful part of what I want to do. This is what I see so often. Artists who fall away from the gospel. Somehow, their passion for the art becomes more important, a more important aspect of their belief system of, or their religion, than their testimony of the Savior. How do you keep that balance? Well, the thing is that I've had other people ask me that. And once I finally realized the church is not there to support you financially. And once I started understanding that it's not the responsibility to give me work, it's my responsibility to serve God with my talents, time, effort, everything. Oh, I can tell you from right? experience, we both know that right? artists feel that they deserve to be placed on a pedestal as yeah. a result. And instead, just the concept that an artist is a servant is more unique than the world realizes. That artists who feel that they are a servant, that they're basically put in the position that they have with the talents that they have so that they can give a gift to the world. And Heavenly Father gave them that gift. And really, they're nothing special. They are servants of Christ. That's a really good point. It brings me to another point, is that when you realize what a sacred opportunity it is to serve with music, with writing, with the visual arts, etc., etc., and you realize that if you've ever caught yourself chasing the dollar, you've lost focus of how amazing the arts in general, are to serving God. As a vocalist, I did theater for years, and the joy of hitting those notes and singing for people is such a, a special opportunity. And when you're trying to make a living at it at the same time, sometimes it becomes work instead of the joy of the testimony. And one of the greatest times that I felt in my life is when I started teaching and sharing and I could still do my artwork at home and I was able to be a part of something bigger than I was, the joy came back to me and I was able to see things that I don't have to compete. I don't have to compare. I don't have to be the best. I just paint what I paint because this is what he wants me to paint. And if he doesn't want me to paint it, then I don't paint it. But the humility has been hard. No doubt. When, Anybody who's been right, given great talent has you, to and deal it's with been their so own sad to watch how ego and humility. My ego and when people come up to you and say, Have you seen Christ? And I'm going, Why would you ask such a question like that? And then I look over at Journey's End, I'm going, Oh my word, what have I done? What have I said to these people that are searching for answers? What have I done? And I started realizing the magnitude of what kind of a mantle an artist will put on himself and pressure. And it was terrifying because I'm not, I don't walk on water. I, I have one foot in hell, one foot on this side, and I'm holding my wife's leg so hard so I don't fall down into the pit of despair. <laughs> She's the one who saves me. And to have this and not allow it go to my head where people thought I was something special. I'm not any more special than they are. 
I just chose to speak a different language of the Christ testimony. And I understand now why Michelangelo, when he did the Pieta, and they were all saying how great this was and that this great artist who did this at the time was so amazing. And they weren't speaking of Michael. They were speaking of this other artist. And he was so infuriated by it that he snuck in that night and hammered his name. Michael Angelo Bonarote, the Florentine, made this right across Mary's chest. And he did this prove his point that he was amazing. He was the greatest at that time. And he was. And when this happened, he came out again in the morning and everybody's angry. How dare you defame this amazing sculpture, the greatest sculpture of the divinity of the master ever produced was the, the, was the Pieta. He couldn't hear him because he was affixed at what he had just done. He had just defamed the greatest sculpture and testimony of the arts ever done at that time with his name across the sash of the mother of Christ. And when he did this, he wept inside and he promised God, I will never, ever put my name on my artwork again. What a painful realization that he could never take his name off of that sculpture because he saw it wasn't about him. It was about the living Christ. And when people have to have their name on their art just to make a living, it puts them in a really compromising position at times because people think, oh, well, if he's writing this, then he must have all the answers. I hate to tell you all this, but I do not have all the answers. I am more accountable than ever before of knowing the flaws that I have and how damned I will be if I do not rise above these things that God has blessed me with. And when I watch Michelangelo and the love that he had for Christ and to see what had happened it changed my life. It changed my world to know that it's more important that people know who Christ is than for them to know who Derek Hegstead is. I'd rather them not know me. But for them to know that I know that Jesus is the Christ, that he paid with his blood and his life for our sins and that he is my keystone that saves me from the jaws of hell. He is my power and my light. I have no name. I shouldn't have a name, but just Christian. And if people can understand that, they will understand that no matter how many paintings I paint and how many people that say what an amazing person, what I've done for them and how they know these things because of my paintings, that they will come to realization. And that's all that I've always wanted is for them to have that peace 
and that peace casts out the adversary and he has no power over them or what they give him. Derek Hegstead, one of my best friends in this life and a person with whom I've had the extraordinary honor and privilege of being able to know in mortality. It's been such an honor, Derek, to have you as a part of this podcast, and it's more of an honor to have you as my friend. I want to close this podcast by asking my normal question, which is, if you don't feel as close to the Savior today as you did yesterday, who moved? And if you can answer that question, always pointing back at yourself, then I think you have a better chance of reuniting with him for the rest of eternity. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for listening. This is Chris Heimerdinger, and this is Forever LDS. Thank you.